What's up, y'all? It's Drewski, and I've teamed up with Mountain Dew to produce a hilarious new basketball podcast called The Dew Zone with Drewski. Learn the backstories of your favorite ballers and celebrities like Jamal Murray. Did you have, like, a favorite team? Was it the Raptors at the time or no? Was the Raptors even started around that time? Come on, bro. I ain't that old, fam. <laughs> You're talking like I'm 50. Taylor Rooks, Asia Wilson, and many more. You won't want to miss this. Listen to The Do Zone with Drewski on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, and wherever you listen to podcasts. Welcome to Burn It All Down, the feminist sports podcast you need. We are so happy you are here. This is our 100th episode. I'm Jessica Luther, a freelance journalist and author in Austin, Texas. And on today's show, I'm joined by Brenda Elsie, an associate professor of history at Hofstra on Long Island. Amira Rose Davis, an assistant professor of history in women's, gender, and sexuality studies at Penn State University. And Lindsay Gibbs, a reporter at Think Progress in Washington, D.C. Shreen Ahmed, a writer, public speaker, and sports activist in Toronto, is our other co-host, and she is heartbroken to not be on the show today. We actually moved our recording time from our normal early Sunday morning to late on Sunday night this week to get all five of us on our 100th episode. Shireen, unfortunately, had a change in her travel today. Mechanical failure grounded her plane, and she had to take a different route home, which means she's currently on a plane to Seattle and then will be getting on a red eye to Toronto. But we have found a way to include her. So she's here in spirit, but we've made sure she's also in the episode. As always, thank you to our patrons who supported this podcast through our ongoing Patreon campaign, Make Burn It All Down Possible. We are forever and always grateful. If you would like to become a patron, it's easy. Go to patreon.com slash burn it all down. For as little as $2 a month, you can access exclusives like an extra Patreon only segment or a monthly newsletter. Thank you for supporting us and this work. On today's show, we're going to talk about March Madness, both the men's and women's tournaments. And then, I can't even believe I'm saying this, we have a roughly 30-minute interview with Doris Burke that I did earlier this morning. She is a (laughs) full-time MBA. Yes, I know. I don't, if anyone remembers, a long time ago on the show, I said she was one of my dream guests. And here she is on our 100th episode. (laughs) Doris Burke is a full-time MBA game analyst for ESPN the woman that Drake crushes on every day, and one of the best in-game and post-game reporters in the land. And of course, we'll cap off today's show by burning things that deserve to be burned, doing shout-outs to women who deserve shout-outs, and telling you what is good in our world. But first, can we please talk about this video that I first saw on Instagram a few days ago? I believe it was Rachel Nichols who posted it. It appears to be like an autograph signing event with the Milwaukee Bucks superstar Giannis Antetokounmpo, A young girl brought along with her a purple folder, which contains a year's worth of sketches that she'd done of Antetokounmpo. She hands it to him, explains it, and before he's even opened it, Giannis is up. He goes around the table to hug and thank her. And y'all, the way that she like falls into his body when they go to hug, because she comes up to like his waist because he's giant and she's a girl. It is just like the sweetest (laughs) thing. So I'm just announcing tonight that he is my MVP. Anyone else with me on this? (laughs) Yes. I haven't seen this video. I've been following all week. Oh, no. So this sounds incredible. And uh, I'm going to have to text this to you. Can you hear this? Her tears. (laughs) But her tears. The 
way that she sort of just cries spontaneously and it's not like a sad cry but it's like a oh my gosh is it, this is happening is it like what i would imagine shereen yeah. meeting tim duncan to be yes okay yeah oh, i mean there'd yes. be more screaming i think shereen would there be like more screaming and yeah. smiling and yeah. very fast. this, this is quieter yeah this is like, a she, quieter like, meeting quieter. she was just like kind of not that's what really struck me is like she came up and she you know was explaining he was like she's like this is for you you're my favorite player like etc cetera, etc cetera. she'd drawn pictures of him for like a year and and then once he gets up she's so overcome that like she can't talk anymore she's just like nodding and sobbing and it's it's beautiful and i loved i was actually looking at Giannis's girlfriend fiance wife whatever and she's like on her phone clearly bored with this entire event and as soon as this little girl comes up she like it snaps yeah, to she attention like and up. she gets emotional too yeah and i was just like everybody's so happy i love it that it is so there's just such a sincerity from both of them and he is so kind to her in a way that just like radiating off the screen like he does eventually look at the uh, the drawings that she did and tells her how great they are and you just like just imagining what that that interaction will mean for her for like going forward in her own confidence in life and just everything about it was so beautiful. Do we it see the drawing? Pure. Have we seen the drawings? No. Mm-mm. I think that I don't know. Burn it all down might offer her a logo opportunity. Like I would be, <laughs> I would be all I into it. it. I love it. All right. Well, now that we all have smiles on our face, let's get on with the show. Brenda, do you want to get us started on March Madness? So as Jess mentioned at the top of the show, we are recording on Sunday, March 31st, and we are awaiting still the final four of the NCAA Women's Basketball Tournament. We know UConn and Oregon are in, and we're now awaiting the result of Iowa versus Baylor and Notre Dame versus the Stanford Cardinal. The men's tournament will resume this Saturday, April 6th, with Michigan State, who booted Duke in a tight game last weekend, this weekend, facing Texas Tech and Auburn, then versus Virginia. I did a little thing because Lindsay wrote this amazing piece on Muffet McGraw, and I went and I researched the salaries of the coaches for both sides. And I'm just (laughs) (laughs) okay. We're ready. Okay, we're ready for that. I mean, it's it's actually. Are we going to yell "burn" at the end of this? Okay, (laughs) go ahead. No, but I just think that the four that we know for for the men's side will at least bring in in base pay eleven point five million this year, like all total, right? Together. Together. Okay, gotcha. And the women's, and I took the top two possible, meaning Mulkey and Muffet McGraw, if they were Mulkey. to win, is $4.6 million. And I'm just going to throw out there that I don't know why this isn't a Title IX issue. But anyway, we're going to talk in a moment about the treatment of those different tournaments, but I just wanted to set that out and then just say, for me, just before it gets all fun, I am <laughs> – I'm so sad about Chuma Okeke um, and his injury. Yeah, tell us what happened to him. So, yeah. so torn ACL in Auburn's 97-80 okay. win over North Carolina. We didn't need to say the score. We don't need to be so specific. 
Jesus. Oh, goodness. <laughs> really? Oh, goodness. What? I'm very depressed. Oh, right, because you care. I'm feels. sorry. <laughs> I'm so sorry. You care if Michigan State's oh still in it. So I guess our alum, Yay. yeah, our alum, whatever. It was the tale of two angry coaches, Tom Izzo versus Coach K, right? And two very angry, overpaid <laughs> coaches. <laughs> but anyway, so sorry about the score, Linz. But anyway, uh, yeah, torn ACL, and I'm just heartbroken when I saw that injury and I saw Bruce Pearl, the coach of Auburn's post-game um, whatever interview, and he was crying and it was sad. It was awful. I thought to myself, though, and this goes back to my original point about salary, that Bruce Pearl is just, you know, going to be heartbroken and not broke broken. But that's not the case for these players. So it's been a tough tournament because as exciting as it's been for me, I feel really conflicted. So I'm just going to throw it to more fun people now to <laughs> to ask you all, what have you enjoyed then about the tournament since I already did the icky bit? Oh, man. I feel like there's been so much fun basketball in this tournament on both sides, men and women's. Just today, the, I didn't get to watch UConn-Louisville and the women's side this morning. For me, it was this morning. But I did get to watch Oregon and Mississippi State. And that was just, it was such a thrilling, I only, and I think I only saw the fourth quarter even. I texted all of you or messaged all of you to tell you, like at the end, I was crying, <laughs> like this emotional release that I was so happy for Oregon and I was so sad for Mississippi State. And like that is sort of, for all of its ills, in March Madness, that is sort of, you know, the magic of the tournament is this kind of dual emotional response that you can that you have repeatedly at the end of these games. But yeah, I mean, yeah. Purdue playing anybody I- maybe has <laughs> <laughs> been on the men's side has been incredible. Amira, yeah, it's on the women's side. Some of these girls I've I've known for a few years. So like Kennedy grew up playing basketball with my cousin Alexis. Oh, uh, Kennedy and- Carter. At yeah. A&M? And oh, wow. yeah. And it's crazy to watch people know her name because I'm just like, it's Kennedy. Like, so that's like really exciting. She had an absolutely oh, stellar. She's stellar, such a stellar performance. <laughs> I mean, this guard performance, her and Ricky going back and forth. Like oh, that was the, fun. I mean, they're both in the what was their final stat line? 36 and 30. It was Yeah, I don't know. It, it was, was a so joy. high. <laughs> it <laughs> was. It really was. And so that's, you know. That's something that brought me just like personally a lot of joy. Like I, I haven't, I guess I haven't seen Kennedy in person since they were their last year of high school in the McDonald All-American game for the top high school players. And they were just like goofy high schoolers. And so it's wild to me like to get on Twitter and people are like, Kennedy, so clutch. And I'm just like, oh my goodness. Like it's it's so wild, the exposure that you get in these moments. And especially like this one shot she had going down the baseline and like absolutely threw it up. It didn't count. It was, you know, called off, but it was tremendous to watch. before the shot. But she yeah, still exactly. made it. Yeah, exactly. It was a blah, whatever. But is that kind of joy that you know? And I'm I'm much like you, Brendan. That it's become harder and harder every year for me to watch it. I've stopped doing brackets and things like that. But those moments of like pure joy it, are still so captivating. Yeah, I agree, Lindsay. How how have you enjoyed this tournament this year? Well, I've been so lucky because so the first weekend. The Maryland Terrapins women 
hosted. So I got to go and cover that. So I got to see Maryland play Radford and Tennessee and UCL play, UCLA play. Oh, wow. And then I got to see UCLA upset Maryland in the second round. UCLA is so phenomenal. And Corey Close, their coach, I cannot wait to have her on the podcast. She was one of those people <laughs> where, you're in, where you're in press conferences and you're like, I need you to be like my motivational like life coach, you know? Like I just <laughs> like can I, I now see why people love playing for you because uh you are just nailing it. So that was just a really great way and now I'm in Greensboro. So that's this is my hometown and so what a great opportunity to come down here and watch some basketball. So I've been here. It's been South Carolina, NC State, Baylor, and Iowa. So South Carolina and NC State are both gone. They both lost in the Sweet 16. Tomorrow I will get to watch Baylor and Iowa face off. Oh, my God. I've sat in my first two Kim Mulkey press conferences and lived to tell about it. (laughs) Oh, my god! What do you mean? Tell us what you mean. (laughs) The most intense. So, okay. So every single – for those of you who don't know, like every single one of these press conferences usually starts out and the moderator says – okay, the coach will start with an opening statement and then we'll go to questions. You know, so the coach just kind of says what's on the top of their mind about the game. And that's just standard practice, WNBA, you know, NBA. This is just kind of like how it's done. Mulkey goes, I don't have an opening statement. Questions, please. (laughs) (laughs) Every time. And she was like calling out Baylor reporters. She was like, like they were, you know, there were a few people from, from Waco there. And she was like, they were asking her about a specific game and she would go, well, were you at that game? You know, she was just like really calling them out. It was intense and I kind of loved it. So, um, you know, I've got to see Megan Gustafson uh, up close and personal, Kalani Brown. Oh, I it, love Kalani it, so much. I love her. I, I, get, I cannot wait to see Kalani Brown and Megan Gustafson go off. It's going to be wonderful. Head to head tomorrow. So, yeah, it's just been so much fun to be able to see so many of these players up close. I learn so much every time I do. The only good game I've actually gotten to see live was Maryland UCLA, which was actually thrilling. But we'll see. I mean, I just I do love this time of year. I feel like it's been a really great showcase for women's basketball. I mean, there have been pretty clearly seven top teams this year. All seven of them made it to the Elite Eight. <laughs> and the eighth is Iowa, which has Megan Gustafson, the player of the year. So you really just kind of can't ask for for more than this. That's amazing. And will you tell us a little bit about your piece that you wrote this week for Thing Progress? Because it was quite the stir, or it caused quite the stir this week, your quotes from Muffet McGraw. Yeah, so I had the idea to go... You know, women in coaching is something we talk about in this podcast a lot. And it's always a topic I'm looking to find a way to write about in new ways. And actually, when we talked to Muffet, when I interviewed Muffet for this podcast last year, one of the things she brought up to me multiple times was the fact that she had an all-female coaching staff and how proud she was of that. So, you know, I did some digging and found out how rare that was and thought it would be really great to go and spend time with her and, you know, kind of write about women in coaching through a lens of, at the time, you know, the defending national champion, defending coach of the year, you know, and someone who's really kind of taking active steps towards getting more women into coaching. When I got there, it was even kind of more of a story than I thought. She confirmed to me, I asked her, would you ever hire a man again? And 
she said no, that she's done hiring male assistant coaches. And it's she was so, it's so well written too, Lindsay. <laughs> I just love how it's like physically written oh, on the screen. You. It's just no. <laughs> no, yeah. That's what she told me. And I was just like, you know, it's one of those moments where you're like, oh well, I have my story. <laughs> mm-hmm. But but of course the story's actually about so much more than that. So, you know, I try and give a kind of Cliff's Notes version of all the different obstacles that women in coaching are facing. And honestly, each of them deserves their own 4,000 word deep dive. Um, Of course, racism and homophobia are at the top of the list. It is much worse for black women. And there's still so many women in the closet in, in coaching and women's sports, particularly in women's basketball. But you also have, of course, Title IX issues, you have networking issues, you have pregnancy and motherhood and then just the pressure of feeling like, especially when you're really in the spotlight the way Muffet is, feeling like the way you're judged is different than the way your male counterparts are judged. And so, you know, there was a section in there where she talked about how she feels like Gino can get away with a type of anger and a type of coaching that she can't. And she was really frank about that. And I found that very interesting. So yeah, I, thank you for asking, Jess. I, I am very proud of this piece. And it's, yeah. uh, I knew that some people would be upset. And I, don't expect everyone to be like, yes, this is what everyone should do. Hire no men. But this it's her story, you know? Yeah, my, my favorite thing are all the people that were like, oh, what if a man said that right. he was never going to hire women? And I'm like, look, assholes, they don't even have to say it. They literally do it. Yes, all the time. You know, we're talking <laughs> like, to you. Yeah, like, what do you even mean by that? Brenda. Yeah, I mean, Linz, I don't want to put you too much on the spot, but UConn coach Gino did respond <laughs> specifically to your your article, which I was very proud of. You know, I'm always proud to be associated with all my co-hosts, and I was like, hey. So, <laughs> so what did what did Gino? So I heard that Gino thought that Muffet McGraw should should send thank you notes or something. To people that used to work for her that were men? I don't know. What what did you think about his response? Yeah, so there was a Connecticut writer who read my article and decided to kind of do a response column to it. And he had the, you know, kind of the overall take that a lot of people have had, which is, you know, you shouldn't completely limit anyone from your coaching pool, which is his, <laughs> you know. That's a response I certainly expected a bunch of people to have. So that was kind of the writer. So the writer asked Gino specifically, Gino, of course, hadn't read my article. I think it had only come out a few hours before this press conference. And Gino said, well, Muffin McGraw should, you know, I hope she says thank you to the men who have worked for her, who helped her get a national championship and helped her recruit all these players to help her win a national championship. And he seemed angry that she felt the need to make a statement about it. And you know, Gino, to his credit, he hires all women. He, you know, his coaching staff has always made a female assistance and he's been purposeful about that, but he's never. So for him to say that it's not a statement is wrong because he's clearly felt the need to make a statement with his hiring practices, right? He uses that. Like he, he'll say, well, I hire women. So, you know, he gets it. He just got really mad. And so, you know, I, I covered this in my piece, but Muffet did have, she always felt the need to have at least one man on her staff, on her coaching staff up until seven years ago. And part of it was when she started coaching Notre Dame back in the mid 80s. 
you know, all the AAU coaches were male men, all of the scouting people were men. And so she really felt that like, in order to get access to like these networks, that it was important to kind of have a man. And she also very candidly said she loved the optics of having a woman be in charge of a man, which I love. <laughs> I love her. <laughs> yeah. I love her. But it was it was seven years ago when one of her coaches, Jonathan Subsis, who is currently at Wisconsin, when he left uh, to be the head coach at George Washington and one of her former players reached out about the open coaching position. And she was like, yeah, why have I not had all women? And that kind of, you know, that's when she really changed. She's not the first person. Tara Vanderveer hasn't hired a man in 25 years or 30 years, really, at Stanford. And nobody's been up in arms about this. The reason people are up in arms right now is because Muffet was explicit about it, right? She said, no, from now on, I'm not hiring a man. And I find it so interesting how much her just saying that out loud, if she had never said out loud and just done it, people wouldn't have gotten this mad about it. It's just the fact that she's saying it that has people really up in arms. And it's so important because one of the things that happens in one of, you know, the place, the thing where, you know, Gino's response comes from is that when people are trying to correct systemic inequality, you have to be targeted with it. You can't just like hope it corrects itself. And so if you have a ridiculous imbalance, and we've seen this with colleges that refused admittance to black people or to women or, you know, whatever, um, were exclusive in any ways. We see this with coaching. You have uh, imbalance for decades that is purposeful, right? It's like actually people being barred from coaching or, you know, a whole league that says that they think really the people who have um, the most coaching knowledge are men. This is what happens. And we've said this over and over and over again with the massive exodus of women coaching women's sports at the college level after Title IX. So you have this huge disparity. And how do you fix the disparity? Well, you have to be explicit about it. You have to be explicit about it. And ev- what everybody wants to do when you're dealing with these issues of inequity and you want to go to fix it, they just want to say, okay, well, we're correcting by saying everybody's doing it. Like every everybody is qualified now, so we can't ever take color or gender or whatever into account because that would just be reverse sexism or racism or whatever, fill in the blank. So everybody's equal. We see everybody the same. And it's like you can't for a 100 years not see everybody the same and then all of a sudden decide to and think that's it. And so part of what I you know love about exactly your point, Linz, is that the explicity is, is exactly – and is what's necessary to eradicate a lot of this imbalance. Yeah. And I mean, like I said, I was not expecting her to honestly be that explicit. And I think it says something that even caught me by surprise, just because we're so used to all the caveats that people give in order to not rile, offend people <laughs> or rile up people, right? Or what, whatever. There have been all these men in my mentions who've been like, this is a Title IX lawsuit. She's discriminating on the basis of sex. Like, and I'm like, I want to see a male basketball coach. Sewer. <laughs> like, <laughs> like, let's just like try that. Yeah, uh, let's do that. Well, I would like to know. Fisher exists as a person. So yes. not be <laughs> That's a fair. mediocre person who decides they're entitled, right? I mean, I would like to someone to count the number of women who have coached for the Notre Dame men's team right. ever in the history of the count. school. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> so, I mean, that's a we long know how the job. Works. That's a look. Come yeah. on. Yeah. <laughs> oh, man. Amira. 
So I think the thing that has, you know, been really interesting is we've had really great basketball, but I also, you know, we've said this so many times again, that basketball brings out some of the worst, whatever you want to call it. And so I just think that everybody should be continue to be vigilant about reminding people that gendering March Madness explicitly male and, you know, not understanding what it means when you say, oh, this has never happened before, but women have done it, or saying uh, there's no games today, even if there's women women playing the Elite Eight that day. And I think that this is a time of year where we really see a lot of what we talk about constantly. We see the highs of sport, we see the joy of it, and we also see exploitation. We also see, you know, blatant sexism. We also see the worst kind of trolls. And so, I don't know, every time we get to March Madness, I just think of this duality, and I think it's like a perfect microcosm of that constant fight to enjoy sports um, and insist that we can enjoy them without all the bullshit. Up next, an extended interview I did with Doris Burke. Among many things, we talk about her finding her voice, why she's excited about Maria Taylor and the younger generation of women broadcasters, which coach is her favorite to interview, and her thoughts going into the NBA playoffs in a couple of weeks. I am very excited today to welcome Doris Burke, the Doris Burke, to burn it all down. If, somehow, you're not familiar with her name, you will most likely know her voice. Doris has been a full-time NBA color commentator for ESPN for the last two years, the first woman ever to have a regular NBA game analyst role on the national level. Over nearly the last three decades, she has also provided commentary for countless women's and men's college basketball games and for the WNBA. Additionally, and not least, she is a world-class sideline reporter and one of the best in-game and post-game interviewers in the business. Last year, she became the first female broadcaster to receive the Basketball Hall of Fame's Kurt Gowdy Media Award. She is also a former basketball player herself. She played at Providence College, and according to her bio at ESPN, when she graduated, she held seven records there. She was the school and conference all-time assist leader with 602, Providence's single-season leader in assists with 224, and in free throws, both for single-season 152 and in her career, 440. All right. Thank you for being on Burn It All Down, Doris Burke. Uh, my pleasure. My pleasure. Am- well, you did your research. You're going back a long way to find those Providence College numbers. <laughs> well, they're just right. ESPN's got them right there. So oh, they're easily yes. available. I have so many questions for you. So I'm just going to jump in. I want to start at the beginning. For those who don't know or who haven't read one of the many amazing profiles that have come out about you in the last couple of years, how and when did you find basketball? I was seven years old, um, the last of eight children, very Irish Catholic family. And my parents decided to move to accommodate my father's job. When I was seven, we moved from Long Island to a small, very small town, one mile square town on the Jersey Shore called Manasquan, very difficult to enunciate. (laughs) And the home that my parents purchased was literally right next door to a park. And I think it was the very first day we moved down there. You can imagine a seven-year-old is not going to help in a move. There was a basketball left in the yard, and my mom sort of put it in my hands and said, why don't you go over there and and do something with that? (laughs) So I feel like I've been chasing that basketball since I was seven years of age. So you're obviously a pioneer when it comes to women in broadcasting. But I wanted to know, did you have women that you looked up to or who were role models for you? What made you believe that you could be the first in all these different ways in your career? 
Well, first of all, I'm going to tell you I'm uncomfortable with that word only because there are women who are my predecessors who experienced things in locker rooms that I never had to experience. You know, Susie Waldman, the great New York Yankees, longtime New York Yankees announcer, tells a story being in a Major League Baseball locker room. And I'm not sure how deep into her career she is. I believe she was in the Toronto Blue Jays locker room. Not sure if it was home or visitors, but it was a Toronto Blue Jays game. And you know what it's like after a post game. There's a media scrum. There could be as many as, you know, 10 to 15 people around the star of that particular game Mm -hmm. trying to get questions answered. And this particular baseball player says to her all those many years ago, I'm not talking until that blank leaves. Oh, my. And. The rest of the writers sort of turn around and look at Susie as if to say, hey, could you cut us a break and get out of here? And Susie talks about that being a breaking point in her career. You know, she had been through so much at that point when another baseball player calls from across the room and says, young lady, if you would like to speak to a professional athlete, I'd be happy to answer any question you have. Hmm. And she talks about that man basically saving her career. So, I mean, Jessica, that's a long-winded way of saying, you know, Jackie McMullen, Robin Roberts, all these women predate me and have faced a level of resistance that I have not. I'm not telling you I haven't faced any, simply telling you that by the time I entered the business, it was different. So those would be the women, Jackie McMullen, because she is in basketball and is so highly respected. It's somebody that I have read with great enjoyment for years. I have watched in arenas as these coaches and players clearly respect the work that she does and how she conducts herself as a person, as a professional. Uh, Robin Roberts, you know, begins in sports, but then skyrockets to incredible heights as a news anchor for ABC. And it's just, you know, it's, it's cool for me. It's cool. And what, what excites me the most, perhaps, you know, I look at a woman like Maria Taylor or Laura Rutledge Hmm. and I think, gosh, these women are going to rule the world someday. (laughs) It it puts a, it puts a smile on my face and they're so much more composed and well thought at their respective ages than I was at my career. So I appreciate the people that went before me, and I am excited about the people who are coming after me. Yeah, that's such a good point. I was just yesterday watching Maria Taylor's when I was watching March Madness and thinking she was doing such a fabulous job. I wanted to ask about finding your voice. And I mean this like in a very literal way. Women in particular are heavily policed by how they sound. And when I interviewed Mary Carrillo last year for Mm -hmm. this show, she told me that she thought her deeper voice was probably an advantage in the sense that people were less likely to criticize her for it. And you have this soothing but authoritative voice. And I was wondering if that's something you worked at or that came naturally to you. How did you how did you find that voice? No, I certainly didn't work at it. And I know that there are play-by-play men who have voice lessons or, and in particular, it's the play-by-play. And I'm not sure, I've never asked Beth Mowens if she's had to do this. Because when you work a certain number of games, obviously your vocal cords can get tired. And so I would tell you that, no, I, I really have never had any professional media training. I did not go to a famous J school, Missouri, Syracuse, I happened into this business, to be perfectly honest with you. I left coaching in 1990 Mm -hmm. because I wanted to get married and have a family. And I didn't think I could be both a great coach and uh, stay at home and do what I wanted to do with my children in their formative years. 
I happened into the business. That's that's the truth. I, I when when I left coaching at Providence College, they put women's basketball their games on radio, and the AD at the time, because I had played and coached in the program, said, "Hey, why don't you give this a try?" And that was literally the formative stages, maybe 10 to 15 games of Providence College and then a TV game or two that year in New England. So I I didn't have any formal training. I will say, you know, it's interesting when you start, it almost sounds forced to you. You're not sure how your voice should sound. Hmm. At some point as a broadcaster, I think you become comfortable with, (laughs) oh my goodness, you know, I have to be me because if I try to be anything else, the viewer is going to hear it. They're going to feel it. They're going to see it. And, you know, after a number of repetitions and it takes some time, you do just simply settle in and say, okay, I'm going to have to be me. And if that's okay, that's okay. And if it isn't, that's okay too. And the reality is this, Jessica, the job that I do in terms of people evaluating it, it's a very subjective thing. Mm -hmm. You could be in the same room hearing two people discuss one announcer and their opinions could be 180 degrees from each other. It's just the nature of things. For whatever reason, stylistically, stylistically, one announcer, it can be more appealing to someone than another. And you, you can't please everybody. So in 2017, after you did the trophy presentation at the end of the NBA finals, which was a masterclass and how to handle that particularly chaotic moment, you said in an interview with Richard Deich, who was then at Sports Illustrated, that, quote, as a broadcaster, it took me a good 10 to 15 years to relax and allow myself to enjoy the job. And when I was reading this in preparation for this interview, I was wondering, like, how were you able to finally relax? Like, was it just it took time in the role? Or was there something that led you to finally sort of breathe in the job? Well, a couple of things. Certainly, again, the more you do a job, the more comfortable you become with it, the more in command you become. You know, it took me years to learn that it takes probably more people than the viewer can conceive of doing their job at a high level to make a great telecast. And by that, I'm, you know, the producer has got to have command of the ship and adjust on the fly if a game doesn't turn out the way you had hoped or the sound bites you acquired in the morning don't fit to what happens. You have to have exceptional tape operators. If you're an analyst and you're trying to make points, you know, the tape has to understand what you're talking about and be able to access that tape quickly. Play-by-play has got to get you where you want to go. The play-by-play senses that an analyst is excited. So I would say One, you learn what a good broadcast is, repetition, and then you have great people around you, which because I've been at ESPN, you know, obviously I have very passionate and knowledgeable sports fans almost across the board. So that helps immensely. And then there was actually one particular moment that made a difference for me. My son at the time, he's 24, so it's probably longer ago than I think it is, but (laughs) I, I just remember sitting watching, I believe it was an Olympics, but it could have been something different. It's so long now. I just remember what he said to me, which was, we were sitting there, the announcers covering what we were watching were clearly having a good time with one another. And there was some laughter and there was certainly joy in the announcers. And my son and my my living room was quite small at the time. And so we were in close proximity to one another. And he said, he just looked at me and he said, mom, what I don't think you understand is when you're having a good time on the air, we're having a good time with you. And I Mm -hmm. thought, man, you know what? 
And one of my challenges, Jessica, in terms of relaxing and enjoying myself, and again, I'm going back so far in my career, but one of my challenges back then was I was doing men's college basketball Mm. as an analyst. Could have been the Atlantic 10, could have been the Big East. And because I was one of the few, and I'm not sure if I was the only at the time, but there weren't many women certainly sitting in that chair. And I was thinking, oh, God, you know, I've got to prove to the audience that I know what I'm talking about, because I knew it was foreign to their ear to hear me in that role. Going back to your, you know, how do you find your voice? Mm -hmm. So instead of just relaxing and enjoying the telecast and the, the, you know, these incredible athletes doing these, these things that I just enjoy watching, I was trying to prove myself, prove how smart I was. That's, <laughs> that is never a good thing on a telecast because the viewer, the viewer definitely doesn't want to hear how smart you are. They want to enjoy the game with you. You know what I mean? Mm-hmm. I want to ask about post-game interviews really quickly. My co-host, Shireen, she wants to know if you ever had a time when you're doing a post-game interview with a player after a loss where it was yeah. difficult for you because of the emotional impact on the player, but that it's your job to ask that person a question. Well, I don't ever, we don't ever interview a player in a loss. Okay. Uh, okay. Typically speaking, I would say we interview coaches in a loss and it's primarily in settings of tournaments. So, I mean, and, and really probably the only time I've had to do that is, you know, I would say a Pat Summit or a Gina Oriema where I'm covering the NCAA women's tournament. And, you know, it would have been they were anticipated to go to the Final Four or anticipated to go to the national championship or win everything. And I do recall both of those people, Gino and Pat, sort of, they're both such exceptional pros and committed to the growth of the women's game and understood the responsibility that comes with, you know, that kind of setting. And to be honest with you, in response to that question, it's a great question. I think it's important in in both a loss, but also the euphoria of a win that the person who's doing the interviewing have a certain tone anyway. And the tone would be slightly different in those two circumstances. Sure. But I'll give you an example of where it's important to keep your composure. Okay. I remember doing an interview at Duke. I was when JJ Reddick was playing there. I don't think I interviewed JJ. But long story short, there was this incredible action late where Duke turns it over on their own baseline, nearly cost themselves a game, and then somehow recovers and then ends up winning the game. And as you can imagine, you know, the Cameron crazies were ecstatic. The energy (laughs) in the building was incredible. But you still have to be able to say, okay, in the midst of this frenzied atmosphere, I've got to figure out what are the most important things to ask. And I still remember asking my first question was something along the lines of what did Coach K say to get your composure back in that huddle between the turnover mm-hmm. and the eventual getting the game back in your in your own command? So it's a great question. I would just say it's important as the interviewer that you're not caught up in the emotion of either the devastation of a loss or the euphoria of an incredible win. I wanted to ask about the job that you have now and the breadth of knowledge that you have to have for every single game about 
all the people on the court, the coaches on the sidelines, the teams, what's happened to them across the season. How do you prep to do that kind of in-game analysis? Like how much time goes into you preparing just for one game? Well, I would say the most important thing I do is if I'm not working a game on a particular night, then I'm watching a lot of NBA basketball. That to me is the absolute key because the more you are seeing a team, the more you're recognizing, you know, what the strengths and weaknesses of individual players are, what the relations happen to be, you know, which starters are playing with the second unit. Or does a coach happen to substitute a wholesale substitution where his bench is deep enough that maybe he goes five and then sort of work starters back in? You do a lot of reading as well. You know, if I have a so so my next game, I actually have a nice little break in my schedule, which was beautiful. But Portland, Denver is my next game. And it's it's this coming Friday. So all of this week, I'll be on NBA.com and I'll be identifying the games that Portland and Denver have. And their games this week will become appointment viewing for me. The other thing is I have incredible and it's it's an amazing thing to me now compared to, you know, almost 30 years ago when I started. So I have in my email each morning one email that has the entirety of the NBA's clips. So Denver's clips would be Uh in this email. Portland's clips would be in this email. So now I can hone in on those two teams. And then like, okay, so then ESPN provides me access to something called Second Spectrum, which basically I could, with a few clicks of a button, punch in Joel Embiid's name, and there's a little uh, video icon that's attached to it. And I could say, okay, I want to see all his pick and rolls and click on that icon. Oh, wow. And up would pop all of that information. And then ESPN has an incredible support staff, meaning... You know, we would get a, an email sort of with a synopsis of each team's summaries, of which sometimes is really helpful because we have a news editor that has gone back and he has kept up with things through the entirety of the season. So, yeah, I mean, it's a lot of prep, but I would say this to you, like everybody does it in my business because the people I work with, they're NBA fans. Right. And it, it doesn't feel like work. Right. You're OK. I, oh, boy, I have a tough day today. I have to I have to read a little bit about NBA. Yesterday, I went to, to my gym and I listened to the Woj pods. He had Doc Rivers on and then he had Nick Nurse on. So as I'm on the treadmill, you know, that kind of gets me through my workout. So, I mean, it's a process, but I'm I'm a fan. Right. Right. I'm a fan and I, I understand how incredibly lucky I am to have the job that I have. And and so, you know, it doesn't it doesn't necessarily feel like work. Some days it does, Jessica. Some days of course. Been, I've been <laughs> at the airport for six hours because I've had multiple delays. And, you know, sometimes the road, you know, I'll sit in a hotel room. It's funny. I was talking to JJ Reddick about this and the aftermath of the Adam Silver, you know, coming out and discussing that he thinks some of his players are unhappy. I had a great discussion with JJ Reddick about it. And he said, I definitely think there could be something to that. And, you know, these guys are on the road a lot. They're, they're separated from their families a lot. There's incredible performance pressure on them nightly. And I know that they make a lot of money and they're compensated well, but you know, the vast majority of them, like all of them, like you and I, we have family and we have, you know, things that go on in our personal world that you're trying to deal with every day. And so it's an interesting lifestyle, that's for sure. I So I do, I would be remiss to let you go without asking about this, about your rising popularity 
over the last few years. I mean, it has been, as someone who really looks up to you and is inspired by you, it's been really fun to watch. For those who don't know, probably the best example, or at least the highest profile one, and I feel like you know exactly where I'm going, Doris. Drake wore a shirt to a Raptors game that had your face on it and the words, woman crush every day. Recently, though, there's other stuff like the women's U.S. women's national team all chose to wear the last name of a woman who inspired them on the back of their jersey during a recent game. And Tobin Heath chose you. And yesterday, I bought a shirt from the site Homage that says, my favorite broadcaster is Doris Burke on it. I first saw that shirt when Rachel Nichols posted a picture of herself on in it on Instagram. What do you make of all this? Like, could you have even imagined that this would be no. your life as you're forging a career that almost no other woman has had? No. And I will say this to you, you know, I've said to my daughter a million times, my daughter's 26. And I always say to her, I love my job. I love my job. But I, I do miss sort of coaching because I felt like when I was coaching those Providence College student athletes for those two years, that I had an impact on their lives, that I could help them be more confident. I remember being that kid when I was 18 to 22 and didn't have a ton of confidence outside the lines you know, of a basketball court. And so I'm blown away by it. I will say, as you know, Jessica, or maybe you're not familiar, there was a very long period of time where where Twitter was not kind. Mm. <laughs> I would say for the first 10 years of Twitter's existence, mm. you know, some heavy objection to me. She's not, you know, I wish she looked like, you know, so-and-so. I was like, well, you know, I wouldn't mind. <laughs> <laughs> or, you know, I don't like her voice or, you know, whatever the criticism might be. And I would say it, it, is, it was the Tobin Heath thing, and I actually tracked down her number. And I called Tobin and I said, I hope you know how I just was so moved by that, Jessica. Mm. I couldn't begin to tell you how moved I was. And I will say it's it's much nicer to be liked than to be disliked. (laughs) (laughs) I mean, I did want to ask about the flip side of it was that I'm, as you just said, like you've gotten a lot of shit over the years for being a woman who enters men's spaces, talks about men's sports. You actually and you do it really well. And how do you manage that part of your career? Like, do you have advice for the rest of us coming up behind? You mentioned Sarah Spain. And, you know, I have great admiration for Sarah on so many levels. I think she is tremendous professional, exceptional at what she does. Mm-hmm. But I find it fascinating, Jessica, that she chooses Sarah to go back at people at Twitter. <laughs> yeah. I don't generally engage. First of all, it's not a medium I use tremendously except to root on my Providence College Friars. I will tell you that I don't listen to, I didn't listen to the bad, right? I couldn't let that bad break me or shake me or have an effect on me. And I would say I handle not that I don't appreciate, especially from my colleagues, from Sarah, which I saw her with that shirt, and mm-hmm. Allie Clifton with another one. You know, you don't let the good or the bad. Here's what I would say to all of the young women in our business. You have to put your head down and focus on the job immediately in front of you. And there are a couple of ways you can evaluate the job that you're doing. One, you know every single day the amount you're putting into it. And if you are pouring your heart and soul and you are working hard on it, then so be it. It, There is no job too big, no job too small. Because I guarantee you, when I was the radio announcer for Providence College Women's Basketball, 
and when I was the radio announcer for the New York Liberty, no one was listening. No one was right. Like mm-hmm. we got put up the WNBA broadcast on radio. David Stern had the brilliant idea to put when you got put on hold in 1997 or 1998 at the NBA offices, you would hear our broadcasts. Huh. Okay. So those were my listeners. It didn't matter because I was honing my skills, the good or the bad evaluations from people who are not directly either employing you or deciding what jobs you get. They don't really matter. You have to decide the job you're doing. And then your employers, those people who hire you will tell you the job you're doing by the assignments you get. And it's not easy. Believe me, I say that to you and understand this, that I When I felt it, like, I'll give you one example. I don't know how this happened, but this is years ago when I'm covering Big East men's basketball before the split with the American Conference. Mm -hmm. Somehow this man decided I had covered Syracuse Temple. He was a Syracuse fan. Temple upset Syracuse as a top 10 team. Somehow this man's thoughts to me on Twitter were coming into my email. And he basically said, I'm going to haunt you every day. And he would send the most vile, vicious things. And it wasn't until my daughter got on my phone and basically said, this is how you block somebody, mom. Mm -hmm. (laughs) I was like, oh, amen. There we go. (laughs) Like, okay. And then the only other thing, like one time I got 15 photocopy pages of basically what was anti-women literature. The way fan mail kind of makes its way to you is, it would be sent to ESPN. And then when you had enough of it, they would put it in an envelope and come to you. And this 15 photocopied pages of, of anti-woman lip, like it was disturbing. And I was like, Ooh, and it's just, you, you have to put it somehow. And I'm not telling you it's easy because I'm, I've been hurt by stuff. I'm not telling you I haven't read any of, I have, but you have to be able to put it aside and put it in, in its appropriate box and just say, you know what? I love my job. There are good and bad pieces of it, and I'm just going to keep plugging away. And you just keep plugging away. That's what I've done for 30 years, basically. Keep plugging away. Thank you for that. I would like to finish up by doing a lightning round of questions, if that's okay with you. My mind doesn't work very fast. (laughs) (laughs) That's fine. Do you have a favorite player that you enjoyed interviewing? No, I would say some of my most memorable moments were LeBron James. Okay. We love LeBron James on this show. Favorite coach to interview? And this is definitely a Shereen question. Favorite coach. Oof. Oh, man, that's a hard one. I'm, you, you know, the one I dread is Greg Popovich still to this day. I'm <laughs> Famously. Sweating. I'm sweating. I'm nervous. It's kept me up the night before. So he would be my least favorite. Uh, probably my favorite is Doc Rivers. Oh, okay. This is also a Shereen question. Do you, growing up in New Jersey, do you have a soft spot for the Knicks and the Liberty? So, a total soft spot. Yes, of course. <laughs> Very nice. Do you, what is your favorite pair of sneakers? Oh, boy, that is a great question. When I was a kid, I had a pair of black Puma Clydes, low suede with a white stripe. They were badass sneakers. <laughs> right now in the game, who's the most underrated men's player in the NBA? Oh, gosh, underrated. Jeez. Maybe Domantas Sabonis. Okay. Okay. I wanted to ask specifically about the NBA playoffs that they're starting a couple weeks, I think on April 14th. Are there under the radar players or teams, those dark horses that our listeners should be paying attention to? Yeah, I am fascinated to see what happens with the Utah Jazz, who had an absolutely brutal schedule out of the gates. 
you know, were, were dangling toward the outside of the playoff picture, I believe, at one point, but have, you know, the schedule lightens. They've pulled their defense together. So I'm really curious who Utah matches up with and, and how far they can go. Boy, under-the-radar players. You know, the other thing that I really am curious about, because I think he's integral to the success of Milwaukee, you know, the the Malcolm Brogdon. He's he's had a year where he's gone 50% field goal, 40% three-point, 90% free throws. It is the absolute best indicator of somebody having an incredibly efficient year. And I'm just curious, can he get back and get healthy? Because, you know, I think the East is formidable at the top. And, you know, Giannis is, is, gosh, you know, he's so close to an MVP award. Can Malcolm and, and Miritich get back and get healthy? So I'm sorry, those are rapid fire, but I am long-winded by nature, as you can no, tell. No, that was wonderful. I would listen to you talk all day. And just remind us your next assignment when, or when we can hear you next. It's a, a Portland at Denver this coming Friday night. It would be a 1030 Eastern tip. Awesome. Thank you so much, Doris Burke, oh. for being on Burn It All Down. This has been wonderful. Jessica, my pleasure. My pleasure. You guys keep uh, keep plugging away at this. I love it. Now it's time for everyone's favorite segment. We like to call it the burn pile, where we pile up all the things we've hated this week in sports and we set them aflame. Brenda, what do you want to torch? I want to torch the institutions of soccer in Colombia. We've been the last, I don't know, month seeing some terrible, racist, homophobic, and misogynist behavior um, from the Colombian football, and by football I mean soccer, establishments. And now we see it in the fans. So this past week in the Bogota Derby between Millonarios and Santa Fe, those are like, it's like the signature game, Miguel Solis, who is the keeper for Santa Fe, was uh, racially abused many times throughout the game, many, many times. And this had to do with name calling and monkey chants. And it's absolutely stomach turning. It happened almost a week ago. There isn't even a sorry ass non-apology from the Millionarios, who the Millionarios' fans are the ones who did it against him in Santa Fe. So not even an apology or a statement in opposition from the Federation, nor from the team whose organized fans perpetrated it. So fans aren't just like, oh, the club's just not responsible. It's like, no, there are rules and they're supposed to go over like like over that you know, footage and to ban those fans from stadium. It is not, it's not like there's nothing that they can do. And so the fact that not the team has, the team hasn't even put out an apology and a statement and nor has the Federation is absolutely unbelievable. It's like, why are there even protocols when they're not even bothering to follow them? And Miguel Solis has come out, um, in the in the papers and he's been very articulate to also explain how this ongoing racism has been linked to xenophobia in Colombia, their treatment of Venezuelans, their treatment of other immigrants and the way in which black Colombians 
are also suffering along with, you know, Afro-Venezuelans and and other immigrants that come. So I just want to burn the fact that he's so articulate and has gone out of his way to explain what happened. And the Federation and the team is just sitting on its hands like the racist, awful institutions that we think they are. So burn. Burn. Lindsay, what are you burning? Oh, okay. So I just want to make a note that one of the things we do want to burn is the Canadian Women's Hockey League announcement that it is shutting down <laughs> its doors, but we're going to have more on that to come because the announcement just came today. So we're still kind of getting our information, but don't worry, friends, we're going to address that <laughs> in the future. But so I want to just take a moment to burn Betsy DeVos, the Trump administration, and everyone who seems to have tried to cut funding for the Special Olympics, um, which just seems like the cruelest of cruel things to do. So look, it's a little bit convoluted, but this week the budget came out for the Department of Education and in it noticed that the, I believe about 18 million that the federal government usually gives to Special Olympics was not in the budget anymore. And that created a lot of backlash. (laughs) And at first, Betsy DeVos said, well, look, we had to make uh, some choices. We had to make hard choices. So of course, when you have to make hard choices, the first people who should be penalized are people with intellectual disabilities, obviously, is that's obviously what monsters would do. So anyways, it turned out that behind the scenes, we're not quite sure what was going on. Like her office was trying to get the funding in and it kept being being rejected from the White House. So then she took the blame for it. And then Trump came through like a hero and said, I'm overriding my people. And now the Special Olympics will be funded. So look, it's all a little bit of a mess. But let's just like people who were using the Special Olympics as like this prop people who think that the first thing to go and cuts should be those who are the most marginalized in our society. Let's just throw that onto the burn pile. Burn. Burn. So this week, we learned through Mark Carrig's reporting at The Athletic that every year, representatives from each MLB team get together and have a meeting wherein they create recommendations that the teams will use in negotiations with their players regarding salary. According to Carrig, quote, the ceremony ends with the presentation of a replica championship belt awarded by the league to the team that did most to, quote, achieve the goals set by the industry. In other words, the team that did the most to keep salaries down in arbitration. Apparently, the belt has been urban legend for a long time, so it's not a secret, but also until now wasn't really a fact either. I mean, I feel like I could just laugh for the next 60 seconds to fill up the rest of my burn pile time. I mean, Major League Baseball gives out a cheap-ass award annually to celebrate teams (laughs) treating players like pawns, or as Carrig writes, quote, it is emblematic of a climate in which the livelihoods of players can be turned into a parlor game. So I am not smart enough or well-versed enough to get into the intricacies of baseball economics, but even I know that there has been quite a lot of tension around this particular issue, the salaries of players, and I have seen the headlines where people have wondered out loud about the possibility of a strike. Arbitration itself, the very thing the meeting was about, seems terrible. It's a situation set up to undercut the players. And for setting the yearly recommendations for this particular negotiation process, the MLB hands out a dumb plastic belt. As Sean Doolittle, a pitcher for Washington National for the Washington Nationals, tweeted in response to the story, quote, 
Wage suppression is a very real problem for the American labor force. Workers across all industries are being systematically underpaid and undervalued. It's just disgusting to see it being rewarded and celebrated the way it's described in this report. The integrity of the game is severely undermined any time a team is competing for any prize other than the World Series trophy. He's good. The MLB should be embarrassed. I doubt that they are. So burn. Burn. All right, Amira, what's on your burn pile? Yeah, so last weekend, um, Bulgarian boxer Kubrat Pulev um, was doing a post-match fight, whatever, post-fight interview with Jennifer uh, Ravallo, who writes for um, Vegas Sports Daily. And at the end of the interview, he grabs her face with both of his hands, forcibly kisses her on her lips, and then walks away. And... She kind of turned to the camera and was like, Jesus Christ, and whatnot. So with the kind of footage out there, there was obviously backlash, to which she released a statement saying a tweet entitled, To the Most Commandant Kiss. And he said, listen, this is no big deal. I was excited. The reporter, Jenny, she's actually a friend. She has no problem with it, so much so that she came out with me and my friends that night you know, yada, yada, yada. We laughed about it at a party later. This no big deal probably came as news to Jennifer Ravallo herself, who put out a statement saying that he not only kissed her without her consent, but he also grabbed her butt. She said, quote, I did not encourage or consent to Mr. Palev grabbing my face, kissing me or grabbing my backside. Uh, No woman should be treated this way. He had no right to kiss me and reportedly She also said that he later asked her to delete the footage of the kiss, which she declined to do. And so I want to burn this down because don't touch people without their consent. Don't kiss people without their consent. Like, just don't, it's not your, you're not entitled to their bodies. You're not entitled to their bodies. And we've seen this happen in this particular dynamic with a female sports reporter you know, we've seen this happen before on the sidelines or post game. Like she is doing her job. Let her do her job. You're not entitled to kiss her or touch her or, and, and do anything like that. Answer the damn question and walk away. So personal space, assault, harassment. I don't like it. I'm not here for any of it. Burn it down. Burn. Burn. And now in a special surprise appearance, here is Shireen Ahmed with her burn. So this week on my burn pile, I am going to be burning something despite the amazing results of attendance in Italian women's soccer, despite the fact that Juventus had a sold-out Allianz Stadium debut, we still see sexism rampant in media. So Sergio Vesicchio is a local commentator on Canal Senca TV in Italy, and he thought it was really important, and he has a place on TV in the province of Salerno, to talk about Annalisa Moccia, who is a an official. She's an assistant ref- official with a league there, and he decided to say that, quote, it is disgusting to see the women who come to serve as referees in a league where the team spend thousands of euros, a federation joke, end quote. So this is translated into English. So I'm not really sure how much Sergio Vesicchio knows about the importance of women's football. I trust none, considering this is also a Women's World Cup year. Does this man really care about football, or does he just care about upholding misogyny? I think it's the latter. So this is what I want to burn. Burn! Burn! 
after all that burning, it's time to celebrate some remarkable women in sports this week with our Badass Woman of the Week segment. First up, our honorable mentions. Two weekends ago, 60,739 people showed up to watch women play soccer in Spain. Last weekend, 39,027 showed up in Italy, and 15,204 spectators cheered on women in Portugal. All smashed single-game attendance records in those countries. Hillary Knight of Les Canadiens was voted best player in an NHLPA poll. Katie Gwai, Kelly Cook, Amanda Tassani, and Delani Harup are believed to have been the first all-woman crew to officiate for the women's final of the NCAA Women's Hockey Tournament. And in that tournament, the Wisconsin Badgers took home the crown, beating their rivals, Minnesota. It is the school's fifth women's hockey championship. Ashley Barty won the Miami Open and will debut in the top 10 in this week's WTA rankings at number nine. Jennifer Yu, who is 17 years old and an 11th grader, is the new U.S. women's champion in chess. That's remarkable. Pratima Sherpa is the first Nepali woman to compete in an LPGA Tour family event. Leah Hextall did play-by-play this weekend for the Men's Ice Hockey Championship East Regional, which made her the first woman to call the Men's Ice Hockey Championship. The Espoo Blues won the Aurora Borealis Cup once again. They have won the Finnish Ice Hockey Association Championship 14 times. Can I get a drum roll, please? Okay, episode 100. (laughs) Only getting worse. Yeah. yeah. It's amazing. It's amazing. Our badass woman of the week is a bittersweet award this time. It goes to the Calgary Inferno, who won the Canadian Women's Hockey League Championship, claiming, claiming the Clarkson Cup. This is bittersweet because, as Lindsay mentioned before, just this morning with apparently little warning, the CWHL announced they will be closing up shop on May 1st. So the final game of the league was the Inferno on fire, taking down the Lake Canadiens 5-2 to in what Shireen says was an incredible game. Congratulations to the Calgary Inferno. Okay. What's good, y'all? Amira, what's good with you? Yeah. Um, I just got back from Arizona where it, there was sun. <laughs> <laughs> that was happy. Um, was at the Global Sports Summit put on by Arizona State's Global Sporting Initiative. It was a good time. I got to hang out with Amanda Blackhorse and Spencer Haywood and really cool people in athletics as well as some academics. So it was just like a smart, what is that word? Smarge board? Smorgasbord? Smorgasbord. <laughs> Whatever that is. <laughs> yeah. So it was just a really cool collection. Yeah. Of- Whatever that is. Yeah, go ahead. Sorry. Of people. Um, and there was sun. Did I say that? And I treated myself <laughs> to running not one, but two escape rooms while I was there in the same night back to back. So it was a good 48 hours in Arizona, which, by the way, is really far away from the East Coast. <laughs> Um, <laughs> I discovered that when I got on the plane and they said, this is a five hour and 11 minute flight. And I thought, where the hell are we going? Anyways. So I flew back from that and was very tired and jet lagged. <laughs> Not really, but I was very tired. And I flew back to Jersey in order to watch some of my students who play for the women's soccer team at Penn State do a spring game at Princeton. It was a low stakes spring game, but um, I'm really close with a few of the girls on the team and with the coaching staff. And it was really fun to watch them play. I went with my best friend who used to work for Princeton Athletics. So it was just like a fun day out in the sun watching them play. And I just want to send a special shout out to one of them, Sam Coffey, who was just called up to the U23 
U.S. Women's National Team because they are going to an Invitational Tournament in Spain this week. So best of luck, Sam. Congratulations. And we'll be watching. Awesome. Lindsay, what's good with you? Yeah, well, I, I kind of already touched on it here in Greensboro. I got to hang out with my mom on her birthday, which was nice. Doesn't happen often when you don't live at home. And gotten to see so much great basketball lately. And it's also really, really nice to have that feature up because it had been kind of ruining my life the past couple of weeks. <laughs> because writing is so hard. Yeah. What's that about? It's so annoying. That. Yeah. It's amazing how that is. And it was so good, Lindsay. So in the end. Brenda, what's good with you? They're so good. Antibiotics are amazing. <laughs> oh, <poor> no, <laughs> Thank you, all those people who invented them. They're great. I, I got strep this week and it's been, I don't know, Aww. many, many years since I had strep throat and it was like swallowing swords. And, you know, three yeah. doses of amoxicillin and I was human. And I'm just like super thankful I had access to it. You know, my youngest daughter got it and she keeps like gagging every time I got to give her the pink medicine. And I keep saying, I am so grateful for this disgusting medicine. <laughs> yeah. Aren't we lucky to and live she, in the age? She of looks at me like, I hate you so much. <laughs> so I gave her a spoonful of sugar and literally it works. Mix and medicine. It does. It does. And she does it just a teeny (laughs) bit. So like, don't get too much on my case for being a bad mom. So antibiotics are making my life right now. Wow. We really, I mean, the escape room was really fun that we did on Long Island, but we next time definitely have to karaoke after that (laughs) impromptu ditty that Amir and I just did. My what's good is, I mean, I talked to Doris Burke for 30 minutes this morning, so that was definitely up there. (laughs) I want to thank Lindsay because I have tickets to go to the Fed Cup in a couple weeks in San Antonio. Who's even playing? It's the USA versus... (laughs) I don't even know. Lindsay, do you even know? Do we know this? I don't even care. Is it the Czech Republic? I don't know. (laughs) I don't know. I'm just so excited to go. I just bought tickets. I bought tickets for both days. I bought... Two. I don't know who's going with me, but someone will. So I'm very excited about that. And then I just to update everyone on my baking. I took a class a few weeks ago of, on making croissants. And last week, finally, I did it by myself at home for the first time. And they were so good. It's so good that they're so hard to make. because they're not good for you. So, but they taste amazing. But it was a day's worth of work. So I don't know the next time I'll be doing it. But I was really pleased with the results. All right, and here's Shireen's What's Good to round this out. So for this week, my what's good is definitely Burn It All Down. I absolutely love this podcast. I'm so proud to be a part of it. There's so many wonderful things that I could say, but I'm going to keep it short. I do also want to wish my youngest Mustafa a happy 13th birthday. He's a teenager today, so now I have four teenagers, which is kind of wild. Also, what's good is Idaho Potatoes. Boise has been very good to me, and I want to just recognize that conference. And also, I do want to say hello to Dr. Sada Reed, who is my new friend. I met her at the conference, and she was lovely and wonderful, and she's an absolutely sincere and delightful flamethrower. So thank you very much. That's it for this week's episode, our 100th episode. 
No. <laughs> Thank you all for joining us. You can find Burn It All Down on Facebook and Twitter. You, If you want to subscribe to Burn It All Down, and you should, you can do so on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, SoundCloud, Stitcher, Google Play, and TuneIn. For information about the show and links and transcripts for each episode, check out our website, burnitalldownpod.com. And hint, 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 you should go look at the website. That's burnitalldownpod.com. You can also email us from the site to give us feedback. We'd love to hear from you. If you enjoyed this week's show, do me a favor and share it with two people in your life whom you think would be interested in Burn It All Down. And also, please, in honor of 100 shows, go rate the show at whichever place you listen to it. Five stars. Say nice words. The ratings really do help us reach new listeners who need this feminist sports podcast but don't yet know it exists. One more thank you to our patrons. We could not do this without you. You can sign up to be a monthly sustaining donor to Burn It All Down at patreon.com slash burn it all down. That's p-a-t-r-e-o-n dot com slash burn it all down. That's it for Burn It All Down. As Brenda says, burn on, not out. Until next week. It's Switzerland. They're playing Switzerland in the Fed Cup. And I'm sorry.